Thanks, Julie. Thanks, guys. Good morning. It's good to see you. We're, uh, we're in Ruth chapter 2. If you turn there in your Bibles, I'd appreciate that. Ruth chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one out of the pew rack in front of you. That'd be awesome. And follow along. We have been going through our series uh, in the book of Ruth. And uh, we've been covering and exploring uh, one of the main themes there is, is God's hesed love for us. His hesed love, right? And we talked about this love being this enduring big love. And when we talked about it at first, we said we need to define this. Oh, whoa, whoa, Bill. Whoa. There you go. That's what we said. Oh, Bill. <laughs> there you go. I got you. I got you covered. Go for it, buddy. Yeah. All right. Rewind, right? Start over again. Yeah. Got to keep you on a leash. All right. Back to God's hesed love. Uh, we talked about this enduring love, and we, we it's like one of these things we can't quite uh, describe fully with like one word, and it's it's bigger than that. And and this overarching theme we see throughout Hesed or throughout Ruth, we see it Hesed throughout the Bible uh, from God to us. And and the love we're talking about is this enduring faithful love that's from forever to forever. And and I want us to understand again just what that is. It, it's Hesed is conduct, God's conduct in accordance with God's faithful covenant to us, His promise to us that that He's wanting to get us to that point of realizing fully the covenant he's, he's given us and the promise he's given us in Christ and then for eternity with him. Um, so I, I want to just give you some words that help define Hesed again that we've been talking about. Uh, we saw that, that Hesed is, is a faithful, loving, compassionate, loyal, covenantal, providing, grace-filled, redemptive, enduring love. That's, that's this big, big love of God for us. And that doesn't even encapsulate it all. Right? We can go on and on studying this. There, there are books written over this. So it's amazing, amazing, deep love of God. And I wanted to talk about it being a movement. It's this movement of God's love. It's not just a once and done. And when we look at the book of Ruth, there's a lot of that going on. It's not just, oh, this is a great aspect to, to think about and, and, and put inside the heart and then put it on the shelf. God's enduring love continues and continues and continues. And I've mentioned how, how it's like a parent to a child. They're, our enduring love for our children, we'd do anything for our kids, right? We want to get them. And in, in, in that, we'd kind of bump them back on track. We set up some boundaries and guardrails to kind of help them stay where they need to be, right? We want them on the straight and narrow, right? Well, God is like that for us, too. He wants to set up boundaries and guardrails and help bump us back. And I, I realized that this week, and I was reading to my daughter. My daughter now, by the way, who's in kindergarten, is starting to read, Oh, man, it's just melting my heart and crazy. It's growing up too fast. But she's starting to read and starting to sound out the words and, and you know, get, get it on paper. And then we'll all find her at times, Dad, come over and look at this. And she sat there at the counter with a, with a pen. I thought she was drawing a unicorn, but when well, she did. But then she, she writes out words. She writes some kind of sentence or phrase, sounding out the words as she goes. It's really cool to see that. So, but for me, I, I kind of saw this picture. We were, we were sitting in the bedroom. We were talking, and I was reading this book to her. And we have these books that where I read the one page, it's more, you know, my reading level, like fifth grade. And then, then the other side is, is her page, where it's more her reading level, where, she, where it's the, the smaller words that she's starting to become familiar with and should know. And, and I just felt like, oh, this must be what God is like when, in his enduring, this movement of love, the motion of love he has towards us. So I'm sitting there, and my, my daughter will start to sound out a word. You know, the, the, the she can kind of, what's one of those she recognizes? The, and then, k, 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 a, t, t, no, no. Ah, I say I, I would say ah 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 okay and she then she gets the word right because she knows cat she doesn't know Kate right well maybe it's her friend at school but but cat, cat is what we're trying to get to she it's the word cat 
And so you, you, I got to correct her. I kind of help her. I kind of bump her back over. Nope, it's not the A, and it's, it's this rule, and then it's this rule. And, and English language is so hard anyway to try to figure out, right? We're trying to, when does an E sound like an E, and when does it not sound like an E, and it's, it's an E. Is it eag or is it egg? You know, how do we do that? So trying to help her understand, like, this is what it should sound like. This is what it should be. So I, I just see all along the way this mo- movement in the story from beginning to end. I'm bumping her back. I'm bumping her back. I'm bumping her back to where it sounds and where she can sound it out and read it. And God is much like that in his hesed love for us. It's an enduring love, kind of just bumping us over, bumping us over. And sometimes we didn't even know we were off, right? And my daughter doesn't know. She's just trying to learn. And, and we, we learn through circumstances. We learn through scenarios. We learn through God's divine, providential, just-so-happened moments in life that he could only orchestrate. And we look back and say, wow. You look back, and for, for my daughter, maybe she'll look back one day and see these story times where, oh, yeah, my dad helped me understand and sound out the words how they were supposed to be. For us, we can look at God and say, wow, God, look at, my, look at this life. Look at these circumstances. Look at these scenarios where you orchestrated or bumped me over and moved me into a place where, where I needed to be where I didn't even know I needed to be, but, but I, I got to that place where, where I, could, I could see and realize who God really is and, and what his plan is for my life. And that's his hesed love. He's, he's enduring hesed love. And he does that in accordance with his covenant, his promise. That's, that's what he wants. He wants us to know the blessing it is to know him and to be with him forever. And that's where he's pushing us to. So we talked about in the, in, in the few uh, times before this, we talked about hesed overarching everything out of Psalm 136. And then we went into the idea that, that in hesed, in God's hesed for us, that he provides rest. And we looked at Naomi as one of the characters in the book of Ruth. Last week we saw how in God's hesed that he provides grace or he gives us grace. And what that grace looks like is we looked at that with the actual person of uh, Ruth, right? Today we're going to look at how God gives hesed and has his hesed love uh, brings redemption and how he redeems through that. We're going to see that uh, through Boaz. So we're going to be in Ruth chapter 2 to look at that, and we're going to look at this, this amazing, amazing um, grace-filled redemption, this hesed love of God. Now, before we do that, I wanted to share a definition. I looked it up in the dictionary to kind of define what, is, what does it mean to redeem? What does redeem mean? Here's what it says. It says uh, to buy back or to repurchase. Okay, It's not just to purchase. It's to repurchase. You had it at one time, you lost it, and you're buying it back. It's like if you found something that was donated to the Goodwill and you found it at a yard sale later on. You're going to buy it back, right? Better redeem it. Uh, to get or to win back. And it really shows that you, you had it, it was gone, and now it's coming back, right? The next thing is, the next definition, to free from whatever uh, distresses or harms. So to free from whatever distresses or harms. And there's several illustrations here. One is to free from captivity by payment or ram- ransom. So you were... You were caught and you're prisoner of war and, and the government works out a deal or whatever it might be. You're being purchased out of that slavery. You're being bought, bought out of that slavery, out of that distress. The next one is to, uh, to extricate from or to help overcome something detrimental. Extricate. That's, like, that's the jaws of life. You know, you need a car accident and there's like this, the metal's all around. You can't open the door because it's so tough to open. The, the first responders bring the jaws of life to extricate you, to deliver you, to bring you out of that of that scenario of that detrimental place and bring you into something different where you might heal. That's to extricate. Um, to release from blame or debt. Release from blame or debt. This is really important. If, if you want to talk about redemption, for you and I, who have been redeemed by God, who, who are Christ followers, we believed in Christ for salvation, He has canceled the debt that we owe. He has re- and, and in doing that, He has released us 
from that blame that we should deserve. He has, and he has released us from the debt that we should pay. Now, it's very important for us to understand if we are Christ followers and that's how Christ has treated us, how then should we treat others? The act of redemption is not just a one-way street here where God gives it to us and we don't do anything with it. Now we should be living lives that are redeeming also in the relationships around, trying to show God's ultimate redemption as well. And I know it's hard. I know there can be a lot of blame or people can, can owe you. But for you and I, who are, going to be, who are Christ followers, if we're going to be forgiving and, and set the example of Christ, we are to then release, as hard as it is, we are to release from blame or debt. The net last definition said to free from the consequences of sin. This is that ultimate forgiveness. When, when we talk about that a lot, like, oh, I forgive them, I forgive them. Then you bring it up like five minutes later. Then the next week you, you're like, oh, they, they really should owe, they owe me. No, you, if you really forgave them, if redemption was really offered there, what would have happened? You would have freed them from the consequences of sin. You'd have said, you don't owe anymore. That's gone. Such is how Christ has treated us. And that's how we are to forgive as well. That doesn't mean we don't, we don't forget what happened. There, there, are, there are relationships that are broken because of sin. And although I might forgive and move on and not hold it against you, I'm going to be pretty cautious in that relationship from now on. But thank God that he doesn't treat us that way. He looks at us and he forgives us because of Christ. And then he separates our sin and forgets it as far as the ocean, as far as the ocean is deep and as far as the east is from the west. That's how God has treated our sin, to free us from the consequences of sin. So today we're going to see this picture of Christ's redemption through Boaz, as Boaz begins to, to take these steps of redemption and shows off God's redemption. And hopefully we're going to see that in our own lives as well. All right, let's go ahead and pray and we'll get to work. Father, thank you so much for your great love for us. God, as we, as we are here, we, we come in all different varieties and, and uh, seasons and, God, difficulties in our life or, or, or victories. But, God, we come here humbly to submit ourselves to you. And, God, to embrace the forgiveness and redemption you've offered to us through Christ on the cross and through him raised from the dead. God, humble our hearts today that we might be motivated then out of that love that you have for us to love others as well. God, open our hearts and minds to be receptive to your word. God, we ask you that you're by your spirit and the power of it, God, that you would convict us of sin, that you would expose those places in our life where we are indifferent to you. And God, you would help us treasure you and love you more. Conform us into the image of Jesus Christ so that everyone might see and some might be saved. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're looking at redemption. We're going to be in Ruth chapter 2. We're going to read most of chapter 2 together, and then we'll break some of it down, kind of, kind of exploding some of the, the interactions we saw, okay? Chapter 2, verse 1 is where we begin. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side. He was a prominent man of noble character from Elimelech's family. His name was Boaz. Ruth the Moabitess asked Naomi, Will you let me go into the fields and gather fallen grain behind someone with whom I find favor? Naomi answered, Go ahead, my daughter. So Ruth left and entered the field to gather grain behind the harvesters. She happened to be in the portion of a field belonging to Boaz, who was from Elimelech's family. Later, when Boaz arrived from Bethlehem, he said to the harvesters, The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they replied. Boaz asked his servant, who was in charge of the harvesters, whose young woman this was. Uh, the servant answered, she is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the territory of Moab. She asked, Will you let me gather fallen grain among, from among the bundles behind the harvesters? 
She came and has been here on her feet since early morning, except that she rested a little in the shelter. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Listen, my daughter, don't go and gather grain in another field and don't leave this one, but stay here close to my female servants. See which field they are harvesting and follow them. Haven't I ordered the young men not to touch you? When you are thirsty, go and drink from the jars the young men have filled. She fell face down, bowed to the ground and said to them, Why have I found favor with you so that you notice me, although I am a foreigner? Boaz answered her, Everything you have done for your mother-in-law since your husband's death has been fully reported to me. How you left your father and your mother in your native land uh, and, and how you came to a people you didn't previously know. May the Lord reward you for what you have done and may you receive a full reward from the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. My Lord, she said, I have found favor with you for you have comforted and encouraged, encouraged your servant, although I am not like one of your female servants. At mealtime, Boaz told her, Come here and have some bread and dip it, dip it in the vinegar sauce. So she sat beside the harvesters, and he offered her roasted grain. She ate and was satisfied and had some left over. When she got up to, uh, to go gather grain, Boaz ordered his young men, Let her even gather from among the grain from among the bundles, and don't humiliate her. Pull out some of the stalks from the bundles for her and leave them for her to gather. Do not rebuke her. So Ruth gathered grain in the field until evening. She beat out what she had gathered, and it was about 26 quarts of barley. She picked up the grain and went into town, where her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She brought out what she had left over from her meal and gave it to her. Her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you go and gather barley today, and where did you work? May the Lord bless the man who noticed you. Ruth told her mother-in-law whom she had worked with and said, The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz. Now, verse 20. Then we said to her daughters, in daughter-in-law, May the Lord bless him, because he has not abandoned his kindness to the living or the dead. Naomi continued, The man is a close relative. He is one of our family redeemers. All right, so today we're going to look at redemption. And we're going to focus in re really tightly in a few minutes on just a few verses from this section to kind of see what happened when, when Boaz began this, this redemptive story with Ruth. Before we do that, though, I want us to understand a broad view of what redemption is. So number one is this. Number one, redemption is divinely offered to those that don't deserve. Redemption is divinely offered to those who don't deserve. Redemption, grace, is not given to those who deserve it. It's given to those who don't deserve. It's given to you and to me. Let's go to chapter 2, and we'll look at verses 2 and 3, and then we'll jump down to verse 10. You ready? 2 and 3. It says, Ruth, the Moabitess, Right, Moabitess asked Naomi, Will you let me go into the fields and gather grain behind someone I will find, whom I will find favor? Now, listen to, to this statement. The narrator says, Ruth the Moabitess asked Naomi. The narrator wants us to understand that this woman is a foreigner. This woman is not of Israel. Now, we know that she has expressed faith in Yahweh, and she is moving towards, towards growth in Yahweh, and she is now a citizen of God's household. But... but she, the, the narrator wants us to understand how, how much it took to get to that point and how much grace was involved, how much redemption was involved. What we see is Ruth the Moabitess asked, and here's what she asked, will you let me go into the fields? And, I, and So I think there's something that she is keenly aware of, that she doesn't belong, that she doesn't deserve. Will you let me go into the fields and gather fallen grain behind? And she didn't just stop there. Can I go gather grain? Because see, if you were from Israel, you had a right to do it. 
If you were, were an owner of a field and you had harvesters who were taking up the grain, you were supposed to legally leave behind grain so, so less fortunate Israelites could come behind and glean. That was how the system worked. If you wanted to eat, come. Come work and get some food. But what does Ruth know? She's not an Israelite. She doesn't have the same right. She doesn't deserve. So she doesn't just say, can, can I go gather grain? She says, can I gather grain, hopefully, please, 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 God, behind someone with whom I might find favor? She's hoping that she, she can go to 10 and one of them is going to say, fine, yeah, you can come on, I'll, I'll have pity on you. But you get behind those who are getting behind the harvesters. You go, you go at the very end. This is what she was probably expecting. And more than that, she didn't know what to expect when she went out among these fields to gather, to gather and to glean. And, that, and, and the men that were involved out there, what would, how would they treat her? After all, this was taking place where? In the time when the judges ruled. And we all know how people treated each other during that time. They weren't really upright and moral. But we do see introduced a man named Boaz who was of noble character. And that was, that was kind of a glimpse in there. So we have this idea that there's, there's undeserved, right? Ruth does not deserve this. It goes on. Naomi says, go ahead, my daughter. So Ruth left, and she entered the field to gather behind the harvesters. This, love, this, love this passage. Love this next verse. She happened to be in the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was introduced earlier as a man of noble character. She happened to be in the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was introduced earlier as, as someone who was from Elimelech's family, right? And it says again here, who was from Elimelech's family. And here's her response in verse 10. Again, understanding the undeservedness she shows. She fell face down, bowed to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor? Why have I found favor with you so that you would notice me, although I am a foreigner? Why have you given me grace and kindness and love? Why have I found favor in your sight? Because I don't deserve it, is what she says. Well, what do we know? We know the overarching theme of this book is hesed, and that's enduring, faithful, covenantial love of God. And that's the kind of man that Boaz was. And that's the kind of kindness he was showing to her as well. It was that redemptive quality. And redemption is divinely offered. Divinely offered to those who don't deserve it. And I say divinely offered because it just so happened she happened upon Boaz's field. There's nothing chance about that at all. And the scriptures would actually translate that more just by, uh, on the off chance, she chanced upon. It's, it, it's showing us this providence here of God so richly laid out, that God is orchestrating this. And that's like that a good dad helping his kids to the boundaries, pushing them back where they need to go. And sometimes they don't even know where they're supposed to be, but God orchestrates it so that we can see his redemption at hand. Listen, God's redemption is at hand in your life. It takes us looking up and looking around sometimes. We may not appreciate the circumstances we find ourselves in, and I'm sure as Ruth went into the fields that day, she was not appreciative of the circumstances and what, she could, what could happen to her that day. But she was being faithful. Not only to Naomi, but she was being faithful to God, saying, I'm going to provide. I'm, this, is, this is my new life, and I'm going to trust in what you have for me. This divine loving kindness is being offered to those who don't deserve. Does that sound familiar to you? Sounds familiar to me. Turn with me to 2 Samuel, if you would. Keep your finger here. Turn to 2 Samuel. It's just after Ruth, a few books. And we're going to look at verse, or chapter 9 together. I want to see this language again in, uh, in Scripture where, where there's undeserved grace and, and redemption happening here. 
like we just saw with, with, uh, with Ruth. So in 2 Samuel chapter 9, David is now king of Israel and, and has become king after Saul, and King Saul was not the greatest, and then as actually an enemy of David for, for some time, but Jonathan, Saul's son, was one of David's best friends. They were, they were beloved friends. There was a, kin, a, a kinship there. There was a, a brotherly love there that they shared that was, that was deep. And, and David wanted to honor Jonathan and, 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 and didn't want to disrespect him. But see, when David became king, I want you to understand what would happen here. He became king, and anyone from Saul or Saul's line should be executed, should be taken out, because they are a threat to David's kingship. So he had the right to do that. And we, we find him here in this, in this predicament of, like, what, what's he going to do? What's he going to do? And we'll see this grace and redemption that's offered. So we're in 2 Samuel chapter 9. We're beginning in verse uh, 1, and we'll read through 10. David asked, Is there anyone remaining from the family of Saul that I can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? That word kindness, hesed. There was a servant of Saul's family named Ziba. They summoned him to David, and uh, and the king asked him, Are you Ziba? I am your servant, he replied. So the king asked, Is there anyone left of Saul's family that I can show the kindness of God to? Again, hesed. Ziba said to the king, There is still Jonathan's son uh, who was injured in both feet. Guy can't walk. He's disabled. The king said to him, Where is he? Ziba answered the king, You'll find him in Lodabar uh, at the house of Machir, son of Amiel. So King David had, had him brought from the house of Machir, uh, son of Amiel, uh, in Lodabar. Uh, Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, fell face down, and paid homage. David said, Mephibosheth, I am your servant, he replied. What does he say? Don't be afraid. Why? Because he probably should have had a sword right there. Don't be afraid, David said to him, since I intend you no harm, right? I intend to show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I intend to show you hesed. I will restore to you all of your grandfather Saul's fields, and you will always eat meals from my table. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing, right? He brings this, this son in, this grandson of Saul, and says, listen, I, I want to take care of you. I want to bless you. I'm not going to kill you. I intend you, to do you kindness because of your, your father, Jonathan, for his sake. I'm going to treat you well, and you're going you're to be treated well and taken care of, and, I'm, and you're going to eat at my table. Like, I'm offering this, this idea. You're going to be family with me. Let's let bygones be bygones. Let's, let's take away the fact that you're an enemy of the state because you're of the family of Saul, and let's make you a friend of my kingdom. A friend of my house is what David is saying. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing grace. And, and we get that from Jesus. The same thing. We were enemies of God, separated from him, bound for death. And Jesus says, through the cross, I'm going to make you a friend. And not only am I going to make you a friend, I'm going to adopt you into my family, and you can eat at my table. It's an amazing thing. Our response should be the same as what Mephibosheth says next. Look at, look at what it says next. Verse 8. Mephibosheth paid homage and said, What is your servant that you take an interest in a dead dog like me? He knew his place, didn't he? He knew what he deserved. He was not deserving of kindness. He was not deserving of loyalty. He was not deserving of covenantal treatment, of grace and blessing. But that's how David treated him. And he says, Who am I that you would, tr- that you would treat me and invest in me and, and be interested in me? A dead dog like me. I'm, I'm dead meat. I'm as good as dead. I thought I was coming to my death. And you're treating me with grace. And then King summoned Saul's attendant Ziba and said to him, 
I have given to your master's grandson all that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to work the ground for him. You are, uh, you are to bring in the crops so your master's grandson will have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your ma master's grandson, is always to eat at my table. See, we see a redemption happening here because of a hesed love being poured out on those who don't deserve it. It's really important that we get this. This is a broad, broad statement about redemption. You and I don't deserve it. You and I do not deserve it. But let's, let's go in to see what, what this redemption continues to be. This is, this is still a movement of hesed. It's a movement of redemption. And I, we're going to zoom in now on a, on a special, uh, few special verses. And we're going to kind of break them apart and see what, what does it play here. So number two is this. Redemption urges us to come find refuge. Redemption urges us to come find refuge. Now go back to the book of Ruth with me. And we're going to look at chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 8 through 10. I want to look at verses 8 through 10. I, we read this already, but I want to give it a, like a snapshot for you. In your mind, this is the conversation that Ruth is having with Boaz. Beginning in verse 8. Boaz said to Ruth, Listen, my daughter, don't go and gather grain in another field, and don't leave this one, but stay here close to my female servants. See which field they are harvesting and follow them. Haven't I ordered the young men not to touch you? When you are thirsty, go and drink from the jars that the young men have filled. And then, says Ruth, fell face down, bowed to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor with you so that you would notice me, although I am a foreigner? So redemption. The first part we're going to see here is that it urges us to come and find refuge. Um, it urges us to come and find refuge because God is our only way to true refuge. He's the only way there. Uh, notice what Boaz says. At, at the beginning, he says this, don't go gather grain in another field and don't leave this one. Now, for you and I, we've been introduced to Boaz through the story. We know that he's a man of noble character. So we're, we're reading his part thinking he's saying things real nicely and gently and being kind. and He has the greatest intentions uh, at heart. And we know that he does. But imagine Ruth. Imagine Ruth there and, and she hears this. What if he stopped there? What if he was a an owner of, of, a, of a land, and yeah, you can come harvest here. And he says, he says this, don't go and gather grain in another field. I'm prohibiting you from going and gathering great grain in, another, grain in another field. Don't leave this one. What could that sound like? That could sound like slavery. That could sound like he's wanting to take advantage of her in this situation. He want, he's a new laborer for free. and Yeah, he'll take care of making sure she gets a little, little grain to, and maybe a little money, but, but you're going to work for me now. And who knows how? And she, she was worried about that. Where, where am I going? What am I going to? But he continues, and he continues to say, stay here close to my female servants. See where they're harvesting. Follow along. I've ordered the young men not to touch you. I'm not, this is not about abuse. This is not about taking advantage of you. This is about sharing and giving that you would have provision here. And she, she understands it. And, and, and by the way, drink from these jars, and we'll see what that means in a minute. And she understands that and responds like, wow, this blows my mind that you're doing this for me. I can't, I can't believe that you would... You love me or serve me or show kindness to me in this way. So let's look what he says. It, it, it urges us to come find refuge. What did Boaz know? He knew that he was one landowner of many. He knew that in his field, things were probably different than other fields. He knew how the men and the harvesters in the field behaved and how they, how they acted and reacted. And Ruth shows up, and what does he do? Ruth, 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 you've got to stay here. You have to stay here. 
don't go over there. Don't go, please don't go over there. You stay right here. This is where you're going to be safe. Thank God you just so happened to happen upon my field. It's your lucky day. You stay here. I'll take care of you. See, redemption urges us, urges and, and, and to come find refuge and safety. And that's what God's redemption does as well. I, I want to read John chapter 10 for, to you, and you don't have to turn there. But Jesus is, is speaking this. He says this, Truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. There's rest here. There's, there's safety here. A thief comes to only steal and kill and destroy. I have come that you might find life and have it in abundance. This is Jesus. And, and it's so interesting because Jesus later on in John 14, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And that no one comes to the Father except through me. You see, in redemption, there is an exclusivity to it. Redemption urges us to come and find refuge. Boaz knew that. Ruth, you have to stay here. This is the place you're going to be safe. This is how God's providing for you. I'm not sure what's going to happen. And he seemed a little bit like lost. Like, like Boaz was like, I'm not sure what God's doing here, but he's doing something, so just stay here. He even prays for her, and he eventually is the answer to his own prayer for her. But he's this noble man who knows this is where it's safe. This is where it's best. You're, you're good to be here. Stay here. For you and I, guess what? Jesus is that for us. He says, this is where it's best. This is the only place you can find refuge. And, and people, people balk at this all the time. Oh, your Jesus is too exclusive. He, he's, he doesn't allow other things. He says he's the only way. It's his way or the highway. And we get, we get hard-hearted against that. We're like, oh, man, he's kind of rough around the edges. He just thinks it's only his way. But we don't have to think of him that way. Think of him like Boaz. He's pleading with us. Please, please. Please know this is the only way. Come here. Come enter through this gate. I will let you find rest. I will bring you to pasture. My way is the only way. Thank God there is a way. That, that's what we ought to respond to Jesus saying he's the only way. Oh, well, thank God he's told me. Thankfully, I can have that way. I can go that way. His exclusivity is his way, redemptive way of urging you and I to come and find refuge. That's what redemption does. It urges us to come and find refuge. And there is only one place to find that. And, and Boaz knew, and, and Ruth knew, that was under, the, under the, the shadow of his wings, God's wings, that she would find refuge. And Boaz knew that as well, and he was urging her, come and stay here. Redemption is exclusive in Christ. But fortunately, we have a God who loves us and says, come here, I'm urging you, I'm urging you. But you and I have to let go sometimes of where we think we ought to be. And that leads us to number three. Number three is this. Redemption calls us to cling to Jesus. You know why we don't go through the one gate? You know why we resist that kind of verbiage? Because we're still holding on to some other gate. We're still holding on to some other baggage. We're still holding on to some other sin or ideal. We're saying, I I'm going to hold on to this. This is what I want. And you know, when Jesus says, this is the gate, you're like, I, I don't think so. That's, that's, no, that's kind of presumptuous, Jesus. This seems pretty nice to me. But in the end, he knows it's not the real refuge. So redemption calls us to cling 
to Jesus. So let's go back to the Ruth 2, and we'll look at verses 8 and 9. We're going to break this apart some more. So he first said, don't go gather grain in another field, and don't leave this one. He's urging her to find refuge there. Stay here. This is safe. Then he says, but stay here close to my female servants. See which field they are harvesting in and follow them. Some ama amazing language here happening. Uh, he says, stay here close to my female servants. The, the idea here is like a clinging, like cling to my female servants. Stay right beside my female servants. They know the drill. They know the routine. Stay close to them. And, and Ruth was kind of clingy already. We saw this in chapter one. I don't know. Are you, kinda, are you clingy at all? Some people are clingy, right? And, and this is a problem for us. If we, if we want to really know Jesus and trust Jesus and cling to Jesus, we got to not be so clingy on other things. We, we cling on a little too much, right? Earlier in Ruth, Ruth 1, 14, uh, Naomi's urging Orpah and Ruth said, go back home. Don't follow me. Go back home. Count this cost. Please go away. Go cling to your family. Don't, don't come with me. And Ruth, you know, they, they wept loudly together. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, said, see you later. But Ruth clung to her. Like, no, I'm staying with you. I'm staying with you. I'm staying with you. I'm a big Star Trek fan. I love Star Trek. And, uh, and the Klingons, right? I call my kids Klingons all the time. Because they're, they're, we're walking around. I'm, I'm just, we're trying to mind our own business, fix dinner, pay the bills, get the mail. And what do you have? You have this kid just on your leg. It's like, man, what are you, what are you doing? And they're getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Or they, they, you know, you're, they hop up on their bed or on your bed, and they jump on you when you swing by. And you, they're just like clinging, clinging to you, right? I come, I was, I was kidding you not, I'm sitting in the back, back row, my kids come in, I've got this microphone on, and I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty, like, um, cognizant of it, I, I usually take it off when I'm in the lobby hugging people, because it smashes, my son just, he gets on top of me, and it's like, wipes this thing off my face, and bends it all around, twists the cord, this is the kind of cling on that they are, they cling on, right, now I love it, I love when they cling on, but, but more importantly than just clinging on because they want to love their daddy, is clinging on for the purpose of comfort, and security, and safety. I love it when my kids play with me and bounce on me and grab onto me most of the time, right? But I love it so much that when they are afraid, when they're nervous, even when they feel guilty, that they would come and run to mama or daddy, and they would cling on to me. I love that. Redemption wants us to cling on to Jesus. That's what redemption is doing. He's saying, come, come, cling, cling on to Jesus. Let go of what you had. Let go of this, the excuses. Let go of the lies. Let go of the fear. Let go of the guilt. Cling on to Jesus. There's a passage in Numbers 21. I'll read this to you in a minute. Moses is in the wilderness with the Israelites and leading them to the promised land. And the Israelites, like you and I, got distracted quite a bit. Did their own thing. Went their own way. And and kind of grumbled, and, and God just gets tired of this. They keep, they keep going their own way and doing their own thing. So he sends snakes into the, into the camp. And the snakes go out and bite the Israelites. And, and they're perishing. They're going to die, right, because they're being snake bit. And here's what happens in Numbers. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake image and mount it to a pole. When anyone who is bitten looks at it, he will recover. So Moses made a bronze snake and mounted it to a pole. And when, it, when someone was bitten and he looked at the bronze snake, he recovered. The, the language here from Ruth, when we're talking about stay with my female servants and, and see which field they're harvesting in, 
the language is, is not, it's kind of light when we read it in our own translation. But what it's saying is this, cling to those female servants and keep your eyes on whatever field they're harvesting in. Keep your eyes on where they should be. Don't be distracted. Don't look at something else. Your, your safety, the, your benefit is at stake here. Make sure you follow and watch and be watchful and cling to these servants. That's what, that's what Boaz is saying. And, and this watchfulness is so important. It translates for you and I into our heart. For those the Israelites who were in the wilderness, they, they saw that, that, well, they saw they were getting snake bit, right? And they were starting to die. And, and there was a way set up. If you would just stop thinking of your own self and look into your own self, and if you would look to the snake, look to this image that God has set up for you, that you would recover. Fix your eyes on something else. Fix your eyes on what's going to heal and cling to that. So they did. And then later on in John chapter 3, Jesus talks about this, and it's, it's beautiful. Here's what he says. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. The same way the snake was lifted up, the same way that they were instructed, get your eyes off yourself, get your eyes off the distraction, and get your eyes on what God wants your eyes on. Then you'll recover the same way, Jesus said, the same way the Son of Man will be lifted up. And that you and I are to fix our eyes on Him. The, this, the parallels here, uh, the, the, the snake is, is risen up, it's raised up, and, and you're charged to look at it and recover. Jesus says when the Son of Man, when Jesus is lifted up, you're charged not just to look at it, but it says to believe. If anyone believes in Him, he will have eternal life. There's a belief that goes along with fixing our eyes on Jesus. It's not just about, oh, I see Jesus. Oh, yeah, he's a good, he's a good thing. It's, it's the whole heart of who I am. That I, I, I remove everything else I'm clinging to, and I say, I'm going to cling to Jesus, and the eyes of my heart are going to fix right on him. That he is going to be the only prize worthy of looking at. He's going to be the only treasure worthy of having. That's what God is saying. That's what he does in his redemption. He urges us, urges us for, to be safe, and then he says, I want you to cling to Jesus. Fix your eyes on him and you will live. That's redemption. Sometimes that's too hard for us. We reject it. We're still stuck back in the fact that, wait, Jesus, you're saying you're the only way? Come on. You and I don't deserve anything. And he's given us the way to life if we would cling to him and look to him. Number four, redemption. It pays for and removes the burden of sin and shame. Redemption pays for and removes the burden of sin and of shame. I, I want you to think about this picture of, of Ruth, going back to Ruth. She comes up to the field, not knowing what to expect, but in her heart, her heart is probably racing. What is going to happen? What's gonna, who, how are they going to treat me? How am I going to be received? She is a Moabite woman who deserves nothing. She could be sent away from every field that she goes into. She deserves nothing. She's wondering about her safety. How are they going to treat me? I'm, I'm not only uh, not deserving because I'm not Israelite. I'm not even of them. How are they going to treat me as a person? Is there going to be a race issue going on here where, that, where, where there, there's racism present? Where they're going to think less of me? Her heart is racing here. She just so happens, though, to be in the field of Boaz. And, and there's something about a safety that's present there. And, and, and I want to show you this. It, it removes this burden. She has this burden, right? She comes up to this field with a burden on her shoulders, the burden not only of her own well-being, but of, of the well-being of Naomi, who she's trying to provide for. 
But she has this burden of how am I going to be free of this burden? I've got to watch my back 24-7 as I'm out here. I've got to watch my back. And Boaz said, listen to my daughter. Don't go and gather grain in another field. I saw that, right? He says, stay close to my female servants. See where they're harvesting and go. Then he says, haven't I ordered the young men not to touch you? Haven't I ordered the young men not to touch you? Go down to verse 12. It says, may the Lord reward you for what you have done. This is to Naomi, for Naomi. And may you receive a full reward from the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. Boaz isn't saying, hey, I'm the guy that's going to protect you. You're so lucky to meet me. You're so lucky that I love God. And that under his wings you can find true safety, true refuge. And see, when he said, haven't I ordered the young men not to touch you, this, this burden, this weight that was on her shoulders, what do you think it did? Thank you. And you got to be wondering, did he really say that? Well, later on, he goes on in verse 15. She got up to gather grain. Boaz ordered his young men, let her, let her even gather gain, grain from among the bundles and don't humiliate her. It's not just, haven't I ordered the young men not to touch you? Well, we'll see. Now we see what's happening here. Pull out some of the stalks from the bundles for her and leave them for her to gather. Don't rebuke her. Don't embarrass her. Don't shame her. Don't guilt trip her. Make her feel like she's a princess in my field. Make her feel like there is no more burden because she is being provided for. And that's how God treats us. You see, we have this burden of fear and guilt and shame on our shoulders because of our own sin. And a lot of us, even some of you today, are probably in that place of, will God ever accept me? Will God ever love me? Will God ever really restore me or, or make me feel free? And you're, you're setting that pressure on your shoulders and you're allowing yourself to be crushed. All the while, Jesus was crushed so you didn't have to feel crushed. He died in your place so you didn't have to die. He gave us this opportunity to be free, to be really free. And there's this payment made. Jesus paid it all on the cross. Right? There was a payment that you and I owed. The wages of sin is death. That's what the consequences we owed. The wages was death. Death had to be paid. So Jesus paid it all. The story of Ruth says that Ruth went away with 26 quarts of barley, like a 50-pound sack of barley she's carrying home to Naomi. This is a buff chick, man, right? Especially after, especially after, especially after weeks of that. Whose pocket did that come out of? Who paid for that? Boaz paid for that. He paid for that. See, redemption pays for and removes the burden of sin and shame. For, for Ruth, that shame was gone. That burden of fear was gone. And guess who was paying for it? Boaz was taking care of it. And what did he say? Because you came under, under God's wing for refuge. This is how God treats his people. And, and I love how he, how he mentions, she thinks she's a Moabite. She thinks she's a foreigner. She thinks she should be ostracized. And what did he say? May the Lord God, may the Lord God, may Yahweh reward you for what you have done. And may you receive a full reward from the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have now come for refuge. The Lord God of Israel, guess who she's a part of now? Israel. She's not a foreigner anymore. She's a daughter. She's part of God's household. God is her God now. And that God is providing protection for her, removing the burden of shame and fear and guilt and paying for it. Romans 8, 1 and 2 says this. For those of us that are in Christ... There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because of the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set 
you free from the law of sin and death. That's amazing. This, this burden that you and I should rightly feel because of our own sin can only be released when we are in Christ Jesus. There's not enough work that you or I could do to earn it. There's nothing we do to deserve the freedom we get, but Jesus paid it all so that debt could be paid and then released from us and we could live free. And our hearts could live then in response and worship of God. Verse 15 of Romans 8 says, You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. When that is removed, it is removed. Instead, you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. He's no longer a wrathful God who's, who's enemies, who we are enemies of, but has drawn us near and made us friends, and he has adopted us into his family, and we can cry out to him in freedom, Daddy. And we can cling to him like my kids cling to me. Daddy, I'm free. I'm safe. I'm secure in your arms. There is a trust and security in the Father who gave the Son to remove shame and guilt. Finally, number five, redemption. It wells up life overflowing in praise. It wells up life overflowing in praise. See how this happened with Boaz, this little conversation, the very tail end of it. He said, when you are thirsty, go and drink from the jars the young men have filled. This was extraordinary, by the way. Extraordinary. Not only was she not one of the hired men, she was not one of the, the servants, the female servants. She was a female, and she was not even an Israelite. She was a Moabitess. She's like the bottom rung on the totem pole. She is the least of the least of the least. And that water that was brought in was reserved for the hired men. Everyone else, at the beginning of the day, they went to the city gate, they drew, they drew from the well, they brought it from there to the field, and they brought it with them. Everyone else did that. The hired men could go drink from the water that was there provided for them. And Boaz says, listen, when you're thirsty, go get a drink from this water. You, you don't need to be thirsty all day. Let, let me provide for you. Let me provide this sustenance for you. And that's when she fell down, face down, and bowed down to the ground and said to him, what, what have I done to find favor with you that you would notice me, although I'm a foreigner? And this, this posture that we see here, we, sometimes some commentators want to say, well, this is just a way that they respected their, their authority, the supervisor that was there. But, but the majority of commentators say this, that this was actually worship. She bowed down in reverence. And what we know is that God is orchestrating and God is working in all these things. Yes, did she give praise to Boaz? Yes, but ultimately her praise was to Yahweh under whose wing she had come for refuge. And for you and I, as we look back at this, we can see this amazing, amazing story unfolding. And it's signifying so much more than submission to a superior. We, we see the story and we recognize that Ruth is bowing before a man that God is using to play an extremely important role in Ruth's life individually, in, in Elimelech's family's life, and then as a whole in humanity. We need to look back and see that. And next week, we're going we're to dive into that and see this amazing redemption continuing to move through. And in this tiny little baby, right? We, we end with a baby being born, but that's not the end. And that's the truth about redemption. That's the truth about Hesed. It doesn't stop. It overflows and it continues and it continues to endure so that God's covenantial promise will continue to endure as well. I want to read one last passage to you out of John chapter 4 about this water, this drink. It's amazing. If, if um, redemption wells up life in us and overflows in praise, how does it see in Jesus? 
Well, Jesus is sitting there with the woman at the well. And he's talking about this water that, from this well. He says, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never thirst again. In fact, the water I give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. She responded to him, give me this water. Give me this water. And I think that's the response from our heart. When redemption comes our way, when, when our thirsty, dry, parched spirit needs to be refreshed, renewed, revitalized, and given life, redemption saying, here it is. And we say, give me that water. Listen, God's divine Hesed love is being extended to those who deserve something far, far worse. Amen? To you and I. We don't deserve it. He's urging us through his redemption, through his Hesed love, to come and to find refuge. He's saying, fix your eyes on Jesus. Cling to Jesus tightly. And then let him release us from the burden of sin and fear and shame and guilt and to find and enjoy life from his abundance. And out of that abundance, we are then to overflow. Overflow with praise and adoration to the one, the only one, who can adequately give it. Our prayer should be, Lord, give me this water. Give me this redemption and let it overflow in my life as praise. Amen? Let's go ahead and stand together and pray. Father, we are grateful to be here today. We're grateful for your love. And God, your, your love is, is such an amazing, enduring love. It's not once and done. You continue to love us and love us and love us. And the work of the cross is continual for us as well. Thank you for redemption. Thank you for being the only way that, that we, undeserving people, can come to know an amazing God. That you've redeemed us, that you've paid it all, you've done all the work through Christ on the cross. And that grace and that freedom that you give us is, is an amazing freedom. God, let it well up in us to springs of eternal life and an overflow of praise. We love you, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.